You're making a record. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're the band. We had a band powerful enough to turn goat piss into gasoline. And what do you guys think about that? What? Maybe we should make a record. Like actually make a record. A record, record, record. Yeah, that's what I mean. there welcome to episode 125 of the love that album podcast i wonder if that's a landmark of something you know a quarter of a hundred i'll i'll run with that 125 big episode Woohoo! i'm rambling never mind and it's only the first 60 seconds of the show my name is morris i'm speaking here in melbourne it's a uh, crisp winter's day but it's not raining so i'm grateful for that and i'm here recording on the skype machine with a new person well he's new to this show but he hopes a wonderful podcast called Supporting Characters, and I've been an admirer of him for a few months. So welcome to the show, Mr. Bill Ackerman. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. I'm uh, looking forward to this conversation. We've uh, been talking about this for a few weeks, and you came to me, Bill, with a list of albums that you said, I'd be happy to talk about any of these 10. So I love it when someone can actually say, right, here's a list of 10. You choose. I can talk about any of them. That's fantastic. It means I don't have to worry about, well, do you know this one? No. Do you know that one? No. Just come with a list of 10. There's going to be something in there. And out of your list of 10, I went straight to the album Seed of Memory by Terry Reid. And we'll talk a bit more about why that is shortly in the program. But I want the audience to get a feel for who you are and what supporting Uh characters is all about. And I want to talk about as well why I'm such a fan of what it is that you do. So for those out there who don't know what supporting characters is, could you please give a bit of an explanation as to what it is and how you came about doing this show in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I had been doing appearances on film podcasts like Director's Club uh, a few years back, and the guy that ran that show was starting a, a podcast network, and he asked me to start a like a film discussion type show. Started thinking about all the people that I would like to have on as guests, and a lot of them were friends of mine that had different endeavors in film culture. I knew a number of film critics, people that wrote books on film, people that were doing film podcasts, people that were doing film programming. And I started thinking about making a show not necessarily about directors or about you know particular films, but about the projects of the people in my social circle that were, I, I wanted to hear their stories, how they got into it, and maybe demystify the process in some cases. And it kind of developed from there. You know, Heather Drain has been on the show, on your show a few times now. She was one of my early guests, mm. but I kind of branched out like I talked to film critics and historians, film programmers, DVD and Blu-ray producers, zine publishers, and it's kind of gone from there. I, I've had over I think I'm up to 51, 52 episodes. Some of the bigger names would be like Molly Haskell, Danny Perry, Jonathan Rosenbaum from Australia. I have Adrian Martin, Alexander Heller Nicholas, mm. uh, Emma Westwood, Lee Gambin. I've had Mike White. Uh, you, you've done the projection booth. Maybe some of your listeners know him. Tim Lucas, Bill Lustig, Peter Biskin, Alan Jones. But yeah, it's conversation 
conversations with people's, you know, their childhood interest in film, how they came to get into the particular area of film culture that they uh, they've made a name for themselves with. And you know, sometimes it's people that are up and coming voices like that. Like I've had a Scottish writer, Rachel Nisbet, who specializes in uh, in giallo films and Italian crime films. But then I've also had people, you know, like Molly Haskell that have been in the game since the 60s. So it just kind of just people's availability and, you know, if they're interested in doing it. And so uh, it's been a lot of fun to do. And I've got to meet a lot of my favorite writers and film personalities over the years of doing it. So that's the show. And so some of these people who you've had on the show who you may not have necessarily had a personal connection to before you invited them onto the program have they always been receptive to you yeah most people are not people that i knew prior and i've made a number of friends through doing it because it is like a very in-depth conversation i usually talk to them anywhere from two to six hours i think so most of them around three to four hours and then i kind of condense them and tighten them up i mean i've had people say no i remember uh, listening to the emma westwood episode i have well, only a minor personal connection. I've, we've never actually met, but she is the cousin to my best friend who had pushed the Monster Movies book on me like a few years ago. And then when I saw the name, I thought, wow, fantastic. And I'd listened a handful of times to Plato's Cave without ever realizing that it was her on that program. So my bad there. But that was a really, really fascinating episode. It was three and a half hours and you said you recorded for six and neither of you ever seemed to draw breath. It was just, you were so enthusiastic and just one question led to the next, led to the next. It was a real conversation, which yeah. I think a lot of podcasts that I've heard, I mean, there were some fantastic shows, but someone's got something to say. Someone else has got something to say. What I really dig about supporting characters is that it's just fully conversational. It's not, well, okay, they've said that thing. I'm going to say the next thing. It was, you've said this thing. Well, the rabbit hole is, this is the next point that can be made from what you've just said. It's like a natural conversation. I almost feel like I'm eavesdropping on something. I mean, that's always the hope. And I appreciate you saying that. I mean, in some cases, I mean, certainly when I have someone like Peter Biskind on who did Easy Riders Regging Bulls, mm. I mean, I was the second interview he did that afternoon. I mean, he was in book promotion mode and that becomes more like an interview and it becomes very hard to break that down. I mean, I do a lot of research in advance and I, I try to let them know that directly or indirectly that, you know, I'm not going to be just coming in with no awareness of that. I, I try to read every interview and listen to every interview I can and get a sense of who they are as people and then try to to crack that formality. And someone like Emma Westwood, I mean, that was the first time we'd ever, ever spoken. A lot of the f episodes you hear are the first time we've ever spoken. And sometimes people are they're put at ease right away. And then other people, they need, you know, a little bit of time to loosen up. But, you know, I will cut the loosening up part out if it's not interesting. <laughs> right. So, but Emma, she's exactly like the show presents her. I mean, a very warm, open, you know, loquacious character. And so it was very easy to get six hours deep before we called it a day. <laughs> Have you spoken since? We've not spoken since, but we've kept in touch through email and messenger and, and the like. I've got a lot of good feedback on her episode. You never really know what people's reactions are going to be to any of it. I mean, I knew, you know, when I had Tim Lucas on the show, like, for example, I knew that, you know, he might draw a big audience. And then the, the guy, Ashley West, who does Rialto Report, you know, that was a big episode. But you can never tell. People's social media presence makes a huge difference, too. Like some very connected young millennial freelance writer might have 
have a bigger draw, you know, right up front than a baby boomer writer that's not on any social media sites, mm. <laughs> even though they're both one has like four books in your library and one of them is still pitching the uh, the various news publications to get in. It's always surprising to me how, you know, once they go into the world, what people respond to. But I had the guy that ran the video store that I used to work at as a guest, and he used to run an old repertory theater in the 80s and then started his own video store chain. If you ever saw Serial Mom, the John Waters movie, that's one of Years his video ago. stores and yeah. that. Yeah, his video, one of his stores is in that. And that actually became a really popular episode, even though he's strictly like a, a, a Maryland kind of figure, like he's not an internationally renowned character. But word of mouth sometimes helps these things. And I mean, I'm sure you know how it is. Like you can never really be sure when you send these things out into the world, what the reaction is going to be. Yeah. Generally, both my listeners have been reasonably happy with what I've done. So, <laughs> um, But I mean, look, the like, thing that the story that you're telling there about the fellow who ran that repertory theater, it seems like the people who are drawn to your show are there for the stories. It's not necessarily who it is, but from the description, oh, that's the story they have to tell. Okay, I'll give that a shot. And yeah. in the end, I think that's really what a great podcast should be about. And that's what you're really delivering. So full credit to you for that. I, I, yeah, Thank I've you very much. still got a lot to catch up on, but I've caught a, a, <laughs> at least a good 10 episodes or so. And oh, well, I've so really cool. enjoyed all that I've heard. So I would wholly recommend any of my listeners with even the remote interest in film. As you say, it's not necessarily, you're not speaking to film writers or film directors in the same way that Mike White does, but more about other writers, other podcasts, other people who have stories to tell around film. And I think that was a fantastic concept unto itself. I can wholeheartedly recommend anyone out there who wants to hear something like that with intelligent and really fascinating conversations, then uh, they should absolutely do that. Supporting characters, how can people find it? The website is www.nowplayingnetwork.net slash supporting characters. It should be on all the major podcatchers. I think it's on Stitcher. It's on Apple Podcasts. I still want to call it iTunes, but I don't think that's technically correct anymore. But it's yeah. it's all the major podcatchers that should have it. So it's out there. All right. So what are we here to do today? We're going to be talking music, not film. Although I will make the case that maybe one or two tracks on this album are very cinematic. And I'm sure that you'll be bringing in a cinema connection to at least one of the songs off this album. The album is Seed of Memory from the singer Terry Reid. Who is Terry Reid? Some of you may be asking. I'm sure a lot of you out there will say, oh, of course we know who Terry Reid is, but some of you may be asking, who is this? We'll get to that. After a break, Joanne will be giving the contact details and then we'll be back in a moment to talk about Terry Reid's Seed of Memory album from 1976. You're listening to Love That Album. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion. See here. 
Music and movies. Movies and music. Join Morris, Tim and Bernie every month as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. out. from break morris over here bill over there and we're here to talk about the album seed of memory came out in 1976 on abc records one of several labels that terry reed recorded for (laughs) produced by graham nash and recorded at sound labs in hollywood and rudy records in san francisco this podcast has previously focused on songwriters or bands which have had some level of misfortune in terms of record companies not necessarily being supportive or being around at the wrong time or just ending up being a critic's favorite rather than a public favorite. So I'm thinking of artists like Big Star and Judy Sill and Bill Fay, all artists that we've covered on the show before. And in a way, I guess Terry Reid belongs in that very, very esteemed company of artists who'd made great music that deserved to be heard by a wider audience, but circumstance didn't necessarily allow for that. So before we get into some of those stories, I want to ask you, Bill, what is your original connection to Terry Reid? Is Seed of Memory your favorite album? Was that the first album that you first heard? Where did you come into his music? It was a slow discovery. I mean, I think the first thing I ever heard of Terry Reid was actually... I don't know if we're going to mention them often or not, but I'm a big Replacements fan. He has the last line on Someone Take the Wheel on All Shook Down. Probably technically the first time I heard him. And then I knew Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Peace from the cheap trick cover that opens over the edge and appears on their first record. But, you know, this is not a cool answer, but it is the honest answer. When I was watching (laughs) 
The Devil's Rejects in 2005, I think. Three of his songs are on the soundtrack from this record. To Be Treated Right, Brave Awakening, and Seat of Memory is the end credits tune. It was a period where I'd started going to horror film locations, and there was a film called Let's Scare Jessica to Death that was shot in Connecticut, maybe three hours from my house. And I was making mixes to go with the car rides to this film location. And the film is about former hippies that are kind of going straight in a small town, but then uncanny events start happening. And so I was making a mix of a lot of like folk and classic rock and psychedelia and things from that period that felt like the characters would listen to it. This is the kind of person I am. (laughs) And uh, hearing Terry Reed's song, Seed of Memory, this beautiful, eerie, powerful, folkish tune, it was like the best song I'd never heard before that was perfect for these kind of mixes I was making. I went to iTunes and downloaded this song off the Devil's Reject soundtrack, and it just blew me away. And then, like, well, let me check out the other two songs, and I got those as well. I'm like, these are also phenomenal. Like, let me look into... This record, it's not available, but it's an import. So I imported the Seed of Memory edition that came out. Is it uh, BGO Records, I think, put it out? Like a remastered version in 2004. That was my introduction to that record. And it is my favorite. And it's, I think, not just a sentimental favorite, because it was my genuine discovery of Terry Reed's music. I mean, I think the only other time I'd heard Terry Reed would have been his Give Me Some Lovin' cover in Days of Thunder, I think, is on the oh, soundtrack. Wow. But that, that didn't really make any real positive impact on me. It was really the I have Rob Zombie's horror movie to thank for this very important artist to me. Uh, but then Seed of Memory prompted me to get all the other records. And I'm you know, happy to talk about those in some detail with you as well. But the uh, Seed of Memory is my sentimental favorite because it was this great surprise that a record this good could be completely off the radar to me. Like it wasn't in any of the record guide books that I collect. It was just an invisible record to me. I mean, even the Rolling Stone album guide that I had really only kind of paid a you know, cursory attention to him and, you know, didn't really indicate that it was, I mean, I think I might've known that he was on the, uh, you know, affiliate with like the Stones scene or the Led Zeppelin story, but like that wasn't the kind of thing that would like make me seek out like, oh, what, I wonder what the guy that didn't get in Led Zeppelin, what his records are like. Like it wasn't the kind of story that really would have compelled me to find this. Even the Graham Nash connection, I wouldn't necessarily think, well, I should check out what he was producing in the seventies. There was nothing that would jump out to me on paper that this was going to be a life change record, but that is my introduction to him. There's so much of a level of diversity on this album, and we'll certainly get to this, but there's so much going on this album, you would have thought that maybe one of the more adventurous FM stations in the 70s would have seen fit to throw a track here and there on one of their programs, but it's just unfathomable to me that he's a best-kept secret. So my first recollection of Terry Reid, and once again, shame on me for not following up on it at the time, but when I was growing up in the 80s, there was a show on Sunday night, and I've mentioned this before on the program. There was a show on Sunday night on one of our FM stations called The Album Show. So during the rest of the week, the radio station was playing 
usual top 40 stuff, but every Sunday night they devoted a five-hour program to the wonderful, the great Billy Pinnell, who I've been honoured to have had on this program a number of times. And Billy would host this album show on a Sunday night, and he'd always be introducing people to new artists or playing older artists that you may know about, but some deep cuts. And he didn't care whether it was someone who had sold out stadiums or was just some guy who was playing in front of 10 people down at the local pub. Just it, good music was good music. And thank goodness he's nowadays doing a podcast that we still can hear his wonderful dulcet tones and his expertise, really. just He was my go-to guy. I wanted to know anything about an artist. I'd listen to Billy. And he had played Terry Reid on his album show back in the 80s a couple of times. But back in those pre-internet days, if you wanted to get a record, and we had like an excellent record store here in Melbourne called Gaslight Records. If you wanted to get something on import, you were waiting 12 months. I think I remember on more than one occasion ordering an album and then getting a card in the mail saying your record has arrived and I'd completely forgotten that I've even made an order for it. So to order Terry Reid was just, it was not going to happen. It was just one of those things. I couldn't find it locally, so didn't really follow up on it. To my shame, it's taken until you suggested that we cover Seed of Memory on the podcast that I thought... (laughs) Wow. Okay. Here's my excuse to go through the back catalogue and listen. And I'm just going to go out and get everything, I think, now. I have you to thank, not just for supporting characters and introducing (laughs) me to these wonderful conversations, but you have forced my hand to actually go listen to Terry Reid. I'd known about The Devil's Rejects, but I didn't know that he had songs in it. It's not a film I'd watched. And now I think I want to go watch it. I mean, the, the name Rob Zombie has not been something that I've been drawn to, but whatever else. And I know that some people in some of the film groups have gone and dissed him. I don't know. I've not watched the Rob Zombie film, but I think that if he's gone and included three Terry Reid songs from this album, then he has magnificent musical taste. I can't make a great argument for The Devil's Rejects. It, it wasn't even a film that I had returned to until last week. I knew that we would be talking about this. I'm like, well, I should at least have a, some kind of a fresh memory in my head of this film and also how Terry Reid's music is used in it. I mean, it's a very crude, violent, you know, exploitation pastiche type of film. It has its hardcore supporters. It has its hardcore detractors. It's very polarizing. But the way that it classic rock, and I use that term loosely because it's not just the artists that you know are all over classic rock radio in America, and Terry Reid being one of them. It's the kind of film that would use Freebird in an, without irony right, uh, right. You know, to, for a climax, but then Seed of Memory is over the very end credits, and it gives the entire thing way more weight than this outrageous horror movie would seem to warrant. <laughs> But in a way that it just kind of stopped me in my tracks because I was still kind of processing this outrageous horror movie. And then I was like, well, what is this? What is this? This is beautiful. Oh, this is intense. Do you remember what it was you heard in the 80s on his show? I absolutely have no recollection. In fact, I actually gave a call to Billy about a month ago or so saying, hey, Bill, I'm doing this podcast and like bill used to get interviews with so many wonderful people i mean he was a guy who introduced stevie ray vaughan to australia and stevie ray loved bill so much they spoke seven times within like a two three year period which was absolutely thrilling for me and a lot of other listeners at the time but i called bill and said did you ever do an interview with terry is there a chance that if you have one do you still have a recording of it i could listen to and he said no no unfortunately never got to speak to terry i just spoke about his music 
music on the show. I spoke to Terry Reid once, and I have no oh, real. Like, I have no. I have no memory of what we talked about. I know that we talked about Groupies, the documentary that he's in, not not right. just his personal life. I, unfortunately, I can't remember any nuggets or quotes for you, but I just remember that that's you know I just remember telling him that how much I loved the Seed of Memory record, and you know he was very gracious, and it was just just a quick little thing after one of his shows. But I asked him about the Groupies appearance, which if you haven't seen it, it's on YouTube. Anyone right. that is curious, and it has like this very. I don't know if they're both on there. I think he does Super Lungs and Bang. I know he, the Bang Bang clip is definitely on there. both on there i'm watching bang bang i thought i've never heard it done like this and that's the other thing that i appreciate about his songs to me because he's obviously this great songwriter but he's also an incredible song interpreter yes Um, yeah i I think that seed of memory is actually like a very atypical record in that way because there's no cover tunes on it and i think almost everything else except for river the record right before seed of memory has a lot of cover material on it some of which is very good and some of which is a little bit over the top if i'm honest but the uh, cover of Bang Bang is frightening. Yes. <laughs> it's, a very, it's an ominous arrangement of it. It's almost structured like a hardcore song. Like I think of Minor Threat or something, the way that the tempo builds for uh, dramatic effect. He's in a couple of films. I mean, that that is one. And then I don't know if you've ever seen Glastonbury Fair, the concert film, which I want to say was co-directed by Nicholas Rogue, wow. the director of Don't Look Now and Man Who Fell to Earth performance. Glastonbury Fair, I know he was the DP, but I want to say he's the uncredited co-director of it as well. And um, that has footage of Terry Reid opening the show doing a rendition of Dean, the uh, opening track Mm. from River. And it's great. If that song sounds a little meandering in a studio context, it's pretty electric as a live performance. I think there's actually a few different clips you can find of him doing Dean and that kind of river material on YouTube. So he's been in concert films, and I guess he didn't show up for Altamont, or he could have been in Gimme Shelter as well. Okay, so we're probably going to get to this later on anyway, but we might as well bring it up now. I heard an interview, which I know you had as well, Bill, that he did a year or two ago on Mark Maron's WTF podcast. And he says he was on that 1969 Rolling Stones tour, and not for the first time that he'd been with the Rolling Stones. So they must have been huge fans. And he said he was on every show on that tour except the Ultimate show. We actually discussed Gimme Shelter on the See Here podcast a couple of months ago. And I hadn't seen that film in years. And it was still hugely frightening yeah. in terms of the build up. It was a documentary that sort of had the layout of a great piece of fiction, if you will, because they, I guess, manipulated the film in such a way to build that drama up. Yeah, that would have been quite incredible if they would have had some Terry Reid footage. Although, mind you, it does mostly focus on the Stones. You get a little bit of Jefferson Airplane and uh, a little bit of Tina Turner. Yeah, I say Tina Turner has a great moment in that. She really, really does.
The albums that I listened to on the way to really digging into Seed of Memory over the last few weeks, I didn't go through the entire back catalogue. I've still got a lifetime to do that. But I listened to River a few times and I've listened to the self-titled album, the second one. So I still haven't heard Bang Bang Your Terry Reid, which was his debut, but I have heard the self-titled album. And I'm not sure if it's a trio on that album like it is in that Groupies film that you mentioned, yeah. but that really is a power trio. Bang Bang is very much like the companion to the self-titled record. Like those are the only two that really resemble one another as far as like the same feel. Super Lungs, My Supergirl opens Terry Reid, the self-titled, kind of the same way Bang Bang does. Like they both have this kind of ominous, throbbing minor key cover tune to open it up. And then they both kind of go into more or 60s riff-oriented, like, stonesy rock songs. They follow similar track patterns, I guess. You know, like, as far as, like, and then the third track is, like, more of, like, a ballad, and then there's something more kind of upbeat. The first record, Bang Bang Your Terry Reed, has Without Expression on it, which is weirdly the most covered thing of his. I mean, Crosby, Stills, and mm. Nash covered it as Horses Through a Rainstorm. Mario Speedwagon and John Mellencamp both did faithful covers of it. I don't know why everyone covers it. It's it's all right, but it's not one of his greatest songs, but it's, people cover it a lot, I guess. So at least the royalty checks probably help him. It sort of makes sense that Crosby, Stills and Nash did it because it was you know very harmony laden. And the Hollies, they did a version of it as well. I think the, That's right, the, yeah. the, the, the Hollies version was, was okay, but it was better in Crosby, Stills, Nash pans, I think, than the original Hollies version. And hence Nash's choice to say, right, let's have another crack at this shall we fellas but yeah. it was that song where graham nash was or became a real fan and they started up their friendship and that connection we'll come back to speak more about graham nash because he's a producer of the album so we'll probably get into the whole thing about their path to actually producing this album there's a lot that's just passionate and a full-on soulful rock assault on that self-titled album and presumably bang bang your terry reed Let's go for a few minutes about what I'm going to call the elephant in the room, because it seems to be a conversation that's had a lot on mm. the interwebs. And that's the story about, wow, Terry Reid could have been the lead singer of Led Zeppelin. I'm going to call bullshit on that, as, I, <laughs> as I'm presuming you would as well, Bill. So the famous story, well, I mean, the one thing that if you know anything about Terry Reid is that he was invited by Jimmy Page to sing for this new band he was putting together they're called the New Yardbirds. And I don't think I'm being pedantic when I say that that's not the same thing as saying that he turned down joining Led Zeppelin. Right. In, in fact, really, from what Terry said in the interview with Mark Maron was that he didn't turn down Jimmy Page. He said, well, look, I've got a tour lined up with my band to go play with Cream in America, and I've got a tour lined up to go play with the Rolling Stones in America. Can you cover my financial losses? And Jimmy Page was just a session guitar player at the time. He wasn't the guitar player for this monster rock band. And he said, can you cover my expenses? If so, sure, 
And Jimmy Page naturally said, well, no, I can't. He said, well, uh, I'm afraid I can't, but I know the blokes for you. And that's when he put him onto Robert Plant and John Bonham, who were playing in the Band of Joy at the time. So that's not the same thing as saying he turned down the opportunity to join an already established large band. It was just another gig and he had paying gigs already all lined up. So what would you do? Yeah. Yeah. He was more established, you know, as a touring musician. I mean, the story of him just turning it down, the version that you're telling is the version that he tells now. And I think that that's, I think that's accurate. I never even thought that that was the most interesting thing about his story. It's an interesting what if, but I don't hear his records and think of Led Zeppelin. I think it was for the best for everybody. I mean, I, you know, I always root for Terry Reid to have some recognition and, you know, some financial stability and certainly being in Led Zeppelin would have taken care of that for him. But we would have lost out on a record like Seed of Memory. I just can't think of Led Zeppelin doing this kind of record. And I prefer this record, frankly, to any Led Zeppelin record. Look, I say this as a Led Zeppelin fan. I am a fan of that band. But if Terry had joined that band, it would have been a different beast. Who's to say that they would have turned into the band that they did turn into? It might have been just another project that went nowhere. Although, I mean, I guess with Peter Grant as their manager, maybe they would have still become gigantic because there was no way he was going to accept anything less than the biggest band in the world. But still, musically, it would have been a different beast. And Jimmy Page might have said, right, we're working for the machine and this is how it's going to be. And even if Terry had said, look, I like you, Jimmy. Yeah, okay, I'll join your band. I truly think, and this is all speculation because that's all we have, I think that one or two albums in Terry Reid would have said, look, yeah, this is great, but I feel trapped. I just want to go off and do my thing. I don't yeah. think it would have lasted. You could be right. He's like a free spirit who's traveled from situation to situation, label to label, and he's crossed paths with so many big figures. It, that's actually one of the things I find so Interesting but a little awkward about the WTF interview is how much it focuses on you knew Jimi Hendrix and you knew the Stones. It's all these famous people that you knew. And he's gracious with all of his stories, but he's almost like a character like out of Zelig or Walk Hard or like any of those kind of, you know, stories that are just like this one, you know, lucky or unlucky character kind of brushed shoulders with all these giants. But I think of Terry Reid as their equal talent wise. I mean, as far as like, I mean, since I mentioned the replacements at the top, I always have an affection for the the underdog, the talented, for whatever reasons, either the ones that had a self-destructive impulse or that just had a string of bad luck or just the timing, like all the different factors. The, it, sometimes this is, I don't know if this is horrible or not, but sometimes it makes the music more moving because it, it grounds them in a way. I like some artists that conquered the world as well. You, you might not enjoy Purple Rain as much as I do, but I mean, there are records I like that, <laughs> conquered, that conquered the world. But I also like a number of artists that didn't have their shot. I mean, I, I was listening to your Odyssey and Oracle episode and like oh, that's wow. a record I, can, I compared the seat of memories in a lot of ways that that's a record again like underdogs even though that had a hit single on it you know time of the season it was like still like is that they still get overshadowed by even the kinks let alone the stones and the beatles and you know like all these other artists that were active in that same period it's like i find that adds to the love when they're a cult artist when they when they feel like you're you're one of the people that discovered them you don't not everyone shares your your discovery and it's you know you want to share someone like terry reed with people because it's it is bewildering that he never really i mean you know he's had you know He's had a major label career, like he's still touring. He's had some resiliency, you know, staying in the picture, but he's never had a, a huge record or and he's still not properly acknowledged.
acknowledged as one of the great artists of that whole scene. That's where I really wish that this documentary that seemed to have been started out would end up getting finished. I don't know. Do you know anything about it? There's this documentary, Super Lungs, and we were discussing this in a message, I think, over the week, Bill. Have you heard anything about where that's at? I could be wrong, but I thought I heard that Terry Reid himself had voice some concerns with it you know the what what he was seeing but i could be misremembering so don't quote okay. me on that <laughs> but i think that it's stalled i've not heard anything recent about it and i hope that one day it does see the light of day because it's a story i'd be very curious to hear and i think of films like anvil that film about the canadian heavy metal band i mean there's compelling documentaries to be made about the underdogs that didn't make it i i wish it would not have i don't i don't want it to concentrate on the led zeppelin thing for half an hour no <laughs> Because sure. I, but uh, I'm sure that things like that, I think I think Robert Plant was interviewed for it. There's definitely a story to tell. But, you know, at the same time, the music itself, you know, is its own story. Like it's right. I, I, that's the thing with the Marin interview. It's like, well, they don't really talk about records like Seed of Memory or even River. Well, they talk about River a little bit more, but like they don't talk about his records as much as about his crazy life. And the records are interesting records. Did you listen to any of the ones after Seed of Memory? No, I have not yet. I've listened to those three. You know the the self-titled River and Seed of Memory, and it's definitely my intention to keep going through the back catalogue. There's a CD called Super Lungs, the complete studio recordings, 1966 to 1969, that has his work with Peter Jay's Jaywalkers. It has his first solo single. It has both Bang Bang and Terry Reed, and it has uh, some great bonus tracks. So that actually has everything you need up until for you know everything prior to River. So that's a great two CD set if you are looking to invest in a Terry Reed the early years it's all collected in a pretty handy compilation it's better by far to turn and go your way with him stay with him and let him know the things that I can never know the way things are I know the listeners out there think, well, talk about this Cedar Memory album already, but (laughs) we're working our way towards it. Here's another very important aspect of that history, and that's about the producer Mickey Most. Now, he's important because he was a producer of the first couple of Terry Reid albums, but he's also important in the story because it was due to legalities that he created that prevented Terry from recording his album River. I think this is important enough to build up to the story of what the album actually is about. So Mickey Most had gone and recorded bands like The Animals and Jeff Beck and Herman's Hermits and Donovan and then went on later to form the RAK or the Rack label. And I remember years ago going to my friend's place and seeing albums that had that label and I mean I've got you know, a couple of Susie Quattro albums and it's got that very distinct label. Have you seen the Rack label? I, I, I think so. The logo for Rack shows a picture of a sailboat. So it's always been curious to me that he's never recorded any yacht rock because he would have thought <laughs> with, with that logo, that's what he'd be all about. But <laughs> most signed up Terry and produced the first two albums, Bang Bang Your Terry Reed and the self-titled one. And according to what I've read, he didn't see him as a rock singer. He said, I want you to do more crooner type of music which seems 
Well, maybe not completely bizarre, but if that's solely what you're going to concentrate on, if, I'm sure if you would have said, look, you know, maybe throw on one of, or two of those types of songs, maybe Terry would have said, yeah, sure, okay. But to say, no, exclusively, this is what you're going to do. Why do you sign someone up who's shown his chops in this area and then try to get them to change? Well, the early records are such... They're so curious because, I mean, prior to Bang Bang, he had done Peter Jay's Jaywalkers and a solo single. And, you know, the Peter Jay Jaywalkers that is it's like a mix of like Baroque pop and blue eyed soul and like Phil Spector-ish. Like I think Better By Far was the first solo single. And that's kind of more of a, like a Phil Spector-ish, like kind of torchy ballad. So he had like definitely a lot of material that would be great for like slow dances in the 60s. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think what you could compare it to. It sounds like, like British rockers trying to emulate Otis Red records and bang bang has a little bit of that too it has a, a version of something's gotten hold of my heart you know which is a you know song that's been covered many times and i think there was a the big mark almond version i remember in the, maybe the 80s and i think terry reed the self-title has a cover of stay with me baby that's also kind of in the same vein you know but like these kind of torchy ballads i don't even know where was there a lot of crooners in that 60s rock world look i mean it could be argued that in terms of vocal delivery jim Morrison was a crooner, but in terms of delivering crooning music you know, as what we know from Bing Crosby or Frank Sinatra, I mean, would you consider, not that he's a crooner, but he was delivering maybe music to that audience, uh, like Engelbert Humperdinck or your Tom Jones? Oh, yeah, you know, you're right. Yeah, maybe mm. he was being pushed for that. I mean, there's a song on Bang Bang called Erica that kind of feels like, like a zombie-ish kind of pretty ballad. Erica with much to hide behind her hair Conveniently you cannot see her face she keeps her mind a little eerie and then it has but it has like this very kind of like Burt Bacharach kind of bouncy chorus right like there was right. definitely just, I mean even more than Seed of Memory those early records kind of cover pretty diverse <laughs> stylistic terrain it's also maybe interesting to note how young Terry Reed was during all of this because he was I want to say 18 when he made Bang Bang 19 when he made Terry Reed and I think only 26 with Seed of Memory he was a young guy well I think I read that he was taken on tour with the Stones when he was 15 or something like that for the first time like in 66 does that sound right about 15 sounds right years old yeah I, I would say he was born in 49 but I, I can't remember off the top of my head I thought that was the year but maybe they were exaggerating because he was a young guy I mean even that scene in Groupies when the drummer is trying to save him from you know getting molested by a fan he's like you know Terry Reed is not quite of age yet <laughs> <laughs> I gotta see the film in its entirety now yeah Awkward, but but it, look, it's great that you bring up that song Stay With Me because I'd only ever been familiar with the Bette Midler version in huh? the film The Rose. And I, I'm a huge fan of that film. And it might not be cool to say it, but I'm a fan of Bette Midler. Divine Madness was a film I saw tons of times growing up. And I love her voice. And she's a funny, really, really talented performer. But yeah. Yeah, her version of Stay With Me just absolutely knocks it out of the park. And in research for this, I was thinking, well, there's been a lot of cover versions. Who was the first person to do it? And then I heard the version done by the singer Lorraine Ellison.
right, okay, shut the shop. She owns this song. I mean, I love Terry's version of it. Lorraine's is almost operatic and she by the end of the song she's sounding frantic and that's the approach that I think any of these cover versions have taken with the song you start out in one way and you immerse yourself in the lyric by the end they're absolutely frantic it's almost some level of instability you worry for this character yeah but such a great song and yeah terry does a terrific version but i'm, I'm gonna say that probably the greatest version i've heard out of the limited number is uh, the original by lorraine ellison it's just absolutely knocks it out of the park for me you can cut this if you want but do you know the story about mayfly the ballad from terry reed When the replacements were doing All Shook Down, Terry Reid had been brought in as a session musician. And you know he does backup vocals on um, Someone Take the Wheel. And Peter Jesperson, the replacements manager, uh, who mm-hmm. used to run that record store that Westerberg and the gang used to hang around in, right, was, a right. big fan, was a big fan of the Terry Reid self-titled record. I think Terry Reid played it for the replacements in the studio just on an acoustic guitar and it brought them especially Tommy Stinson to tears and this story actually appears in multiple books about the replacements how you know it brought him to tears and I think about Terry Reid as this in professional terms you know and also ran a brilliant also ran that never got his break and the replacements on the verge of collapse making what essentially is a Paul Westerberg solo album get this rendition of Mayfly from this other guy that had all the talent in the world but just the cards just didn't play out in terms of mass success and I just think of that connection that, that them all in a room and it always kind of changed the way that song plays for me because I think about what was it about it that made Tommy Stinson cry and and every Terry Reid record well most of them have like these vulnerable acoustic ballads you get to a record like The Driver which is 1991 and it's a very slick schlocky production that seems to be aping late 80s Rod Stewart. It's very corporate rock sounding. It has a song called Hand of Dimes that feels like a throwback to the tender, direct acoustic folk style of Mayfly. Like he still always has that in his back pocket, no, no matter what up to the moment kind of contemporary trends he's trying to follow. The core songwriter, singer songwriter level, he's always still kind of an A plus kind of character. But anyway, that's that's something about Mayfly that I, as, a, as a fellow replacements fan, yep. uh, you might find interesting. No, absolutely. And something that Paul Westerberg always seemed to ape. He was either the full-on rock swaggerer or he was going to do a song that was going to make you drop a tear in your beer. Sadly, beautiful always makes a hair on my arms rise up or uh, Skyway, songs like that. Well, even Here Comes a Regular reminds me of, in a different way, of something like Brave Awakening, in yes. a way, because it feels like it feels like an acknowledgement of a life they could have had, had they not gone into music. I mean, it's a different kind of quality. I mean, there's more of a yearning quality in the Terry Reid take on that idea. But that sense of reflection, I think, is what I, is the tone, I think, for not all of Seed of Memory, but I think the recurring thing, you know, is, is either a yearning or reflecting. We can talk about specifics on that, but. Well, let's just finish off a little bit with the Mickey Most story. Yeah, yeah. So so I don't know the exact 
details of the contractual arrangements that they had it seems that when terry had said no i'm not going to go do things in the style that you want then mickey most said right well you're under contract you go nowhere you do nothing so he was only able to just sort of perform live wasn't able to record any more music and until armit erdogan became a fan and said don't worry i'll take care of that and treated Terry really wonderfully, brought him out to the west coast of America where Terry basically stayed, stayed in America rather than living in England after that, and recorded River, or re-recorded, because I think I understand that he started recording some tracks in England, which he wasn't quite happy with. They re-recorded it on the West Coast, and Ahmed Erdogan gave him all the support in the world, and then still it just did not catch a fire. And Ahmed said, look, I will release you, but pay you out your contract, and from everything that I've read about Armour, he sounds like just really an absolute gentleman. And you could have done far worse as a recording artist than to be signed to Atlantic or at least to be under his wing. Listening to River preceding Seed of Memory, it's a very different animal in that it, like, it's very jammy. It's very groove oriented. Yes. It, it feels like songs that largely come out of improvisation as opposed to the verse, chorus, verse structures that you would find on the first two records and less ominous like power rock arrangements. It, it, this is clearly like more of a... It's a it's, sexy it's, funk record. Yeah. Well, a lot of it is. I think there are parts of Seed of Memory that kind of echo River, but with the pop structure and the Graham Nash influence, putting a little bit more of a um, of a commercial sheen, a commercial form onto the kind of funkier ideas that you'd find, you know, really just given room to breathe and spin out in the River kind of tracks. Seed of Memory seems like a logical next step, if you will, from what River was putting out. The other thing I like about River is that besides being this great workout on his style of funk music, but it's very heavily reliant on the acoustic guitar as providing a lot of those rhythms. I mean, it seemed to be that a lot of funk was reliant on electric guitar, but they're trying something different here. Maybe other artists were doing that as well, but it didn't seem to be so predominant on a whole album like what is done here. And you get the lovely little electric flourishes via David Lindley playing a lot of slide guitar on that album. Yeah. Uh, it's an album I really want to live in. I haven't sort of done that quite yet, but just a superficial a few listens, that's what I've picked up. And it sounds in a way like it's the sort of album that Tim Buckley had heard and said, wow, that's really, really groovy. Hang on, let me go away and write Greetings to L.A. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. And I, I feel like this is also a record that incorporates some Joni Mitchell, maybe some Miles Davis. I know the last track, Milestones, is supposedly influenced by Miles Davis.
but that but I also hear even hear like a little bit of Marvin Gaye in the way that he doubles up his vocals. Sure. Like I there's a lot of things that break his template, you know, into a whole series of new directions. I think his influences must have quadrupled, like living in California, having all these other ideas coming to him. It, it's a pretty stark break from the self-titled Terry Reed record in mm. in a lot of ways, I think. A long way away. Absolutely. I mean, if not for the voice, if you just heard the instrumental tracks, you'd be hard pressed to sort of work out that it's the same artist. But yeah. it's only like a few years apart. So so let's actually talk about Seed of Memory because presumably people have downloaded that <laughs> thought. Damn it, I want to hear what you have to say about this album. After Armit released him from uh, his contract, Terry spent the next period of time writing songs and he was just sort of playing them for his friend, his good friend Graham Nash, who said... I think we can do something with this. He said, oh, really? You you want to record with me? He said, yeah, absolutely. I think I can uh, produce an album for you. So he got a contract with the record label ABC Records, which if I recall correctly, I think Ray Charles had recorded for ABC after he left Atlantic as well. So there you go. There's that commonality. One final nod of a hat to Terry's misfortune, ABC Records went bankrupt after the album got <laughs> released. So by this stage, he probably just thought, ah, I'll just record albums just for my own sake. But he put out this album, which has got two distinct sides to it. Side one is the acoustic side. And side two, he's going for more an electric side. But I mean, that sounds fairly simplistic. But songwriting wise, he was doing something different. I think maybe side two has more in common, or at least parts of side two has more in common with the river than following a thematic style that side one establishes. We only have eight songs on this record. In between those eight songs, you have a pair of country rock songs. You have a pair of ominous folk type songs. You have a pair of songs that kind of combine soul music with a almost more of a minor key soft rock feel. You have a bluesy hard rock song and you have a jazzy ballad. Mm, yes. <laughs> I think it's interesting because yeah, as someone that came into the record off a horror movie, frankly. I mean, Seed of Memory. <laughs> and actually, I'd also was a big fan of To Be Treated Right and Brave Awakening as well. But To Be Treated Right and Seed of Memory have a real kind of ominous minor key power to them. And I wasn't sure getting the record if what I would be getting, I might have expected more songs in that vein. It's the kind of record, since I mentioned horror movies, I might as well say that it's like, with a horror movie, the lighter moments in a horror movie, if you know you go into a movie like Halloween and the kids are goofing off, you know because it's a movie about a murderer that those scenes have like an edge of menace to them. And I think that with, with Seed of Memory, there's so much that's like ominous and minor key that even when there's a gentle, laid back country rock feel, 
anytime he has a bridge that goes into a minor key, you feel like this is heading us towards some very dark territory that's coming later in the record. Like It feels like a darker record than maybe it is overall to me because certain highlights of it have a real darkness to them. I don't know if it plays that way for you, but that's how it's always played for me is that the uh, sort of the same way since you know that I'm a Prince fan, Sound of the Times gets thought of sometimes as a political record because the title track has political content and one or two others do as well. But for the most part, it's, it's a party funk sex record. It's a Prince record. You misremember it as being more topical because of a few tracks. I think Seed of Memory, because of a few standout tracks, I think of it as a darker record than River. And I don't know that it's quite accurate, but that's how it always plays for me. I think well, the three tracks that you said were in the Devil's Reject were all from side one. Yes. And yeah, having that visual connection to this horror film, which I believe to be quite graphically violent and quite disturbing, there's also that connection. It's maybe been hard for you, I can't say for sure, maybe it's been hard for you to disassociate your memory of the film with the songs in their own right. But having said that, I completely see what you say about Seed of Memory itself, the, the song being dark and ominous. You have, it's this three chord motif playing over and over again with the occasional sort of echoed flute playing at the end of each one of those three chord sections. And yeah. that's presenting something, if not quite ominous, then maybe mysterious. Even the uh, songs like Ooh Baby, Make Me Feel So Young and The Frame, for all of their kind of soul groove to them, are in a minor key and have this kind of tension to them. Even though the melodies with Graham Nash are quite pretty, it's moody the way that like Fleetwood Mac around this period was also moody. Like oh, it's Good Maybe connection, yeah. It's and it, and I, I think of Fleetwood Mac because I think of British soul and blues influenced artist going to California, going to that Laurel Canyon, going to that mellow waves and sunsets, and creating something that has a bit of that that has occasional ominousness along with the, the laid back feel good summer vibes. Like it's 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 that's the thing I always found so interesting about like that kind of soft rock. Almost sounds like a pejorative thing, but I don't know what you would call it. There's songs like Just a Song from Crosby, Stills and Nash that have this this melancholy or this this darkness to them because of the working in minor keys. It feels like that's something that you don't quite find in the earliest Terry records. You don't really find it too much in River, but I feel like Seed of Memory has maybe it's the Graham Nash connection, but it has like this drama to it. Even in the songs that feel like funk songs or dance songs, they still feel like, because of the minor key, they feel a little bit more dramatic. I don't know if you would agree with me. I'd definitely say that that's a, a true thing, but let's sort of talk a little bit about the first song on the album, Faith to Arise, which is in a, a major key. Can you hear what I've been thinking? Do you hear my words out loud? There's an echo that's insisting that this phone ring about now. But when it does, it rings no question. But when it don't, I'm wondering why. Maybe I'm somewhere you can reach me on this dark and lonely night. And 
yet there's an element, if not necessarily melancholy, but certainly an element of wistfulness. I really love what he does on this song in terms of the rhythmic feel. And that's something I wanted to sort of emphasize is Terry Reid, and I'm presuming it's Terry rather than David Lindley who's playing the guitar on this track, is that he, he has a very strong sense of rhythm. You hear everything he does. It, the rhythm on the acoustic guitar on every song on this album, it doesn't get lost in the mix. It's very distinctive what you hear him doing, and that's a very, very deliberate thing. In fact, Graham Nash's strength as a producer is you hear where every instrument is placed. There's nothing muddied, nothing gets lost, and this, as an album opener, lets you know, at least from a production sense or a musical instrument placement sense, what you're in for. This is possibly the most CSNY-influenced song on the album, I think. Maybe this song, it would have fitted in on Deja Vu. It certainly could have fit on Harvest by Neil Young as well. I yeah, think. yeah, and I think I think it has pedal steel by Ben Keith, who played on Harvest. Right, I, that's yeah. true, yes, yes. This reminds me of, like, Wouldn't It Be Nice or Care of Cell 44, like those kind of songs that grab you right away with a mellow, beautiful kind of melody it sets the stage for a record with a lot of emotional peaks and valleys, but that this is a very warm and ingratiating way to get started. And I agree with you completely that the, the Crosby, Sills and Nash and Young feel, I, I, yeah, it would totally fit on Deja Vu. Actually, that's such a great call that you make about Care of Cell Block 44. Because like a song like that, it's wistful thinking, I'm in this place, you're in that place, and I'm looking forward to us being reunited. It's a celebration of that. But I think it's also been suggested, and I really like this interpretation, that it's a song about, not just about a new start in a relationship, but it's maybe Terry being hopeful that, well, here I am at ABC Records, hoping maybe my career can get a start. I have this new start, new label, new producer, it's a new chance. Uh, yeah, no, I like that reading too. I mean, there's lines about the you know the beauty of London, but there's still rain falling down. Like it feels also like surprising to me that it's actually his second American record because it feels the most like you know England's great, but I, I I can't wait to get back to California where all these things are happening for me because that's the vibe I get from it. I mean, it, he might be addressing the convention of you know addressing a lover while on tour. You know, the, you know I'm on a plane, but I'll be back. You know, to see you. You know, like that kind of that's always how it kind of read to me. But I, I thinking closely about some of the lines in it I think that it also is it feels like like there are details that make it seem like it's very specifically like England that he's going to miss but this is where he needs to go I find this an interesting comparison between him and someone like Richard Thompson now Richard Thompson's made America his home for many many years I think Terry Reid's music has always been American at heart even like when he was recording in England yeah but Richard Thompson you can take the boy out of England but you can't take the England out of Richard Thompson and despite the fact that he's even won Americana awards but you go through all of his back catalogue and he still sounds very much like a British songwriter it's interesting how the two of them have they live in the same part of the world I think they're both in California but one still very much has his musical roots at the forefront of everything that he does. And the other one says, no, I'm going to take in my new adopted home and work with those sorts of sounds. And the same would go true for Graham Nash because, you know, he made America his home and 
American music is, it sounds like that's where his heart is at. I mean, I guess I don't think the Hollies were ever particularly the most British of the British invasion bands. So maybe there's something in that as well. It does feel like a very American record to me, even though it is made by two expats, I guess. You know, I mean, right. it, it, I, I never think of it as a British sounding record. It feels like almost like, like, like an archetypal California 1970s record. Very much. Uh, yeah, actually, so this, that opening song actually sort of sounds, having said that it fits on Deja Vu or Harvest, it really does sound like, well, yeah, this album should have been out five years earlier. It still fits in that mid-70s milieu, but I think that maybe music was going to a different place in the broader sense of things at that time. Yeah, and that's actually true of all of the subsequent records. They feel like they've come out a few years too late in terms of the sound of them. If you like the sound of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, for example, or, or Harvest, I mean, and I don't think those records are what we'd call dated in a bad way. I mean, this this is timeless as those are in terms of mm, production. For sure. I read an interesting interview with Terry, I think it might have been on Pop Matters, Mm-hmm. And he had a really lovely thing to say about working with Graham Nash. He'd had all these stressful times before, legal issues with Mickey most and not doing what Mickey had wanted and even, I guess, recording River had its issues in recording part of it in England and then redoing it in America and feeling like he had to live up to something. But he said... I never had so much fun in my life. This is talking about recording Cedar Memory with Graham Nash. I never had so much fun in my life. It's like me and Graham hanging out. We just hang out, making a record, really. I wouldn't say we were working. It didn't feel like that at all. We'd go in every day and say, well, what do you want to do? And (laughs) that perfectly describes, I guess, what you get on this record. It is a songwriter's record as opposed to the Jammers record that you suggested River was about, although I will make the case that there's probably a couple of songs that do feel like they have that jammy sort of feeling that River does. Oh, yeah, Uh, I agree with you. I think of this record like I think of Pat Sounds in that it feels like a record that would be trickier to reproduce live than maybe the earlier records. As far as the arrangements, you make a great point about Graham Nash as an engineer, as a producer. Everything is easy to hear, like all the different pieces is like it isn't a muddy record everything is right there in the mix where you can make out every piece of it and i think this is a record that has you know horns it has pedal steel guitar it has all of these little colorings to it that really flesh out the arrangements even something like the frame which is kind of more skeletal you know it, it kind of builds gradually but it the use of org it has all these flourishes but it doesn't feel overproduced which is kind of the trick because i think sometimes i prefer the more spartan stripped down arrangements of things and that with terry reed i think the later records would have benefited from a little bit less of a uh, production overkill. This Mm. seems to find the right balance of like tasteful compliments to what he does and maybe pushing him in a more melodically consistent direction. I mean, because I think sometimes with Terry Reid, without a strong hand like Graham Nash, he just wants to wail. Like he just wants to get into the soul of it, which is great. But I think the thing you can find with Seed of Memory is that those moments where he really cuts loose and, and shows real electrifying power, they're always they always build to that to that in a way that feels correct to me. Whereas I think that, you know, sometimes there was that the, the exuberance of youth, there wasn't always that same discipline in terms of like when to use the power of his voice. Well, a word that I frequently like to use on this show is dynamic and mm. Terry knowing when to bring in the drama and when to pull back is certainly a strength on this album. I mean, I'm sure that when I go back 
to the earlier albums and listen to them a lot more and maybe go to the ones afterwards. Time will tell whether that was something that he was consistent with, but certainly on this album, when the wailing comes, it's a jump out of the seat moment because that's not what he's doing all the time. He's restrained where he has to be and he pushes it out where he has to do. There's a singer I want to introduce you to, Bill. Uh, We only just lost him a few months ago. I'm hugely sad. The Melbourne music community adored this guy. Uh, His name is Chris Wilson and... He had the best sense of drama in singing than probably any singer I can think of. His voice was hugely different to Terry Reid's. Chris is more in the baritone range, but he was a big guy with a big voice, but he knew when to pull back and he knew when to push it forward. And I just sort of think that's one thing they had in common was they understood the drama of the song. They understand that a song can be like a piece of film and you know it's not full on the whole time and to make the full on bits work you've got to have the quiet bits and that's something that I think Terry understands as a songwriter and it's something that he understands as a singer and that's what makes another couple of songs that we'll get to work so well I'm holding back there's one song that I'm sure you know which one I'm talking about but I want to save that for get (laughs) get to last but one thing I do want to sort of contrast is interesting we mentioned before that if Side one is the more Americana side, if you want to call that. Mm -hmm. Then side two, you've already gone and said, was a little bit more of a funk workout, a little bit of a jazz thing going on there. And so if side one starts us off as the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young influence, then Ooh Baby, which opens up side two, is something completely different unto itself. It still has Graham Nash's excellent production technique from the first album. You know where everything sits. It's still crisp and it's still clear. Once again, we get the rhythmic pattern of Terry Reid's guitar, which is still a long way away, I think, from what the acoustic feel is of side one. In fact, really on side two, the guitar is nowhere near as prominent an instrument as it is on side one. The thing I wanted to say about this song, it feels like it should have been dropped in. It had that chucka-chucka-chucka feel like it belongs in a 70s porn film. That chucka-chucka-chucka feel and with a lyric like, you know, ooh baby, you make me feel so young. Yeah, well, this one and the song that follows it, The Way You Walk, they have a different drummer, James Gadson, who lives Listeners might have heard him on I Want You from Marvin Gaye or Love Hangover, uh, Lean On Me and Use Me from Bill Withers, like a lot of big R&B staples. And so he is the drummer on this song, which reminds me a little bit of Dean from River, but but with like the pretty minor key California soft rock harmonies that Graham Nash 
seems to be encouraging. It feels like he's taking the groove that he was really keen on exploring in the River record, but adding this dramatic pop kind of vocal idea on top of it. Like I don't know if it was built out of jamming and then given a more pop-friendly presentation, because Dean feels like developed out of improvisation. This still feels like it could be a pop song on radio, which I don't usually think is songs that derive from jamming as being radio singles. The way you walk, if we go to that one, that one feels like, I mean, the definite outlier on the record. It starts off, suggest like a Led Zeppelin-ish kind of thing. And I guess it yes. kind of technically is the most Zeppelinish thing, I think, on any Terry Reid record, really, not even just this one. sounds to me like an outtake from physical graffiti and he mm. does sound like he's channeling Robert Plant in his vocals and it's got that sort of groove that you know, Zeppelin we keep talking hard rock band but they were a really great groove band when they wanted to be and that's why I think that would have fitted in on uh, something like physical graffiti yeah it's the only one that, that the hooks are instrumental rather than vocal yeah physical graffiti is a good point of comparison I mean it has that it's not a harmonica I guess it is a guitar that is doing that hook what you think of with Graham Nash like it feels like the least Graham Nash influenced song on the record he was down the pub getting a beer while Terry was recording that song obviously <laughs> I don't know where it's coming from because it feels so out of step with the rest of the record but it, I don't know if it's just to show that he still has that in his back pocket because there isn't even really an equivalent on River. I mean, the first two records are full of songs that have this kind of real muscular, sexual kind of heavy rock kind of thing. And it, mm. it's something he pretty much backs away from entirely on River and most of this Seed of Memory record also. Maybe he just... <laughs> He just had like this idea that he wanted to get out and he just wanted to show that this was also like it wasn't just a gentle record to like relax to like there was going to be some toughness to it because uh, right. it is the toughest vocal performance too like it's very ag- aggressive I mean most of the songs on this record they I don't know if we can mention for a point of comparison someone like Paul Rogers from Free and Bad Company like it feels sure. like that seems to be it seems like a lot of the times he's using that kind of range but then kicking into almost like a Janis Joplin kind of <laughs> kind of powerhouse thing when he gets into the intense moments and this one is yeah it is a little bit more like Robert Plant Mm. having said all that I mean you mentioned James Gadsden and he's a skilled player for sure but there's something more about Soko Richardson who does the drumming on the rest of the album that I appreciate a whole lot more and certainly one of my bugbears is the sound of a snare drum on a record and the snare drum on this that's a produced snare drum sound it sounds like they've tuned it down in the recording because Soko Richardson's drumming it sounds like it's been tuned absolutely tight to within an inch of its life and this sort of has that more mid-70s thud feel and okay. that's just a personal thing I think most well, you're a most drummer people right? Who, well yes yes yeah um, so I mean do you hear a big difference in their feel as well? yes I do Gadsden does have a groove that he gets into on those two songs but there's something that's more 
I really can't find the words to describe it, but even when they're doing a song like Faith to Arise, where it's, it's a country song, but he's incorporating a reggae thing in, in the chorus and got a country feel, but it still has a funk groove. Yeah. Whereas, so he's saying, right, I can take anything you want and I can make it funky. Whereas the deliberate funk songs on this album, apart from maybe The Frame, are played by James Gadson. They're good, don't get me wrong, but there's just something I think about Soko Richardson that just seems absolutely brilliant. You're, it's not a funk song, but you've given it a funk twist. You've done something, and that takes a, an incredible level of creativity. So I like them both, but Soko Richardson is, for me, the rhythmic hero of this album. Is, if that- yeah, I'm going to listen for that next time I listen to Faith to Arise now. That's a really interesting... I never even thought about the fact that it does have that reggae... I never really put to words what they're doing there, but it is a reggae thing. The rest of Side 2, I just wanted to bring just very briefly before sort of focusing on a couple more songs that just really make this album king for me. But as much as we've been sort of espousing our love for Terry, I think that the couple of songs that don't work for me as well are the last two songs on the album. I think that it's almost like he'd started so brilliantly. It's not so much like he's running out of steam, but he's got so much to compare against at the first <laughs> part of the album. The Frame and Fooling You are both keyboard-based songs, so it's almost like he's put the guitar away in the cupboard and, right, we're just going to work with this. The Frame, it's nice. It sort of sounds like maybe a lesser black exploitation song. If- That's interesting, yeah, because I thought of Al Green a little bit. Acting like you've got a nail in your shoe Just can't get over what's gotten to you Can't stop shouting and covering yourself But when you look for a witness There ain't nobody else Cause it's a whole But I also think of like people like Van Morrison that incorporate R&B into a sea of other influences. And I even, if you ever were, were a fan of the Afghan wigs, but... Not they, so much. Okay, well, they had a song that was kind of in this vein too, called Omerta, if you have any listeners that know that band. It reminds me a little bit of The Frame, but I am a big fan of this one, but I can understand why it might feel it's competing with a pretty heavy-duty side A, so... Right. The Frame, you mentioned Al Green, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I, you're completely right on that it's it's the little horn stabs yes. in that song that bring on that al green feel but it sounds like the sort of song that al if he'd released a bunch of singles it might have been a b-side al green right. song yeah. rather than i'm hitting you with this it's not that sort of song fooling you you mentioned van morrison and 100 percent, it's a van morrison feel when i get mad be glad that I'm fooling you Ain't got no time about working it out Though I'm frowning I am The sort of thing that you think, okay, might have fitted on Veden Fleece, that sort of period of Van Morrison. And yet I went back and tried an experiment and listened to a bunch of Van Morrison side two last track on the album type of songs. 
to work out what is it about Fooling You that doesn't quite work for me. Well, when I say doesn't quite work, I mean, it's a good song and it's got a Van Morrison feel and you can't go wrong with that. But when I think about songs like Purple Heather from Hard Knows the Highway or Almost Independence Day from St. Dominic's Preview, well, certainly Purple Heather is a composed song. Almost Independence Day is a 10-minute jam feel sort of thing, and yet it still seems to have more of a point. It seems like Fooling You to me was, hey, let's go for something Van Morrison-y rather than being a composed song in his own right. I've read descriptions, I think it might be Bruce Eater, somebody that wrote about this for All Music Guide, kind of described this almost like an experimental song. And I never hear it that way. To me, it feels like, you know, this is all, you know, subjective. I mean, to me, it feels like a, uh, a pretty moving closing ballad and, and one that lyrically is a little bit tricky to read. It feels like on the one hand, almost like a very private confession to someone that he's in a relationship with, but it also feels like common on performance like how he expresses the feelings that he's had alone as a charade like he's fooling you like he's not really mad like he's not really going wild it's all an act it's all an illusion like that's always how it comes off for me but it also feels like you're misreading my emotions to a lover like it, it feels like it could have more than one way to read it and it's his lyrics on this record are sometimes so poetic and hard to kind of grasp onto one solid reading it doesn't hurt for me because I don't always even need that from a song I mean it could be in another language and I would still enjoy them but the fact that they are so poetic but done with the same kind of raw gusto of a soul singer or a country singer I've always found so interesting because they're not always, I mean when he's doing The Way You Walk that's very much like a macho sexual grunt kind of song but for the most part these are almost like abstract but they're not they feel sincere they feel like real emotions are being conveyed but in a very private coded way and fully you definitely feels that, that that way to me. I mean, I would say this is unfortunate. This has Plas Johnson on saxophone, who anyone that's heard the Pink Panther theme has heard his saxophone playing before. <laughs> oh, is that him? Okay. Yes. I would say as someone that has grown up with more than my fair share of episodes of it, that I also get a little bit of feeling of the end of Saturday Night Live as the, <laughs> as the credits are rolling, that uh, when the saxophone goes a little bit too long. But it, it doesn't bother me, but it does, it does make me think of SNL a little bit. I, I confess <laughs> that the saxophone in this did take me out of it a bit and, but I know that that was a common element for the time so I am putting that in context and yeah. I know that a lot of Van Morrison songs of that period made use of the saxophone in a very similar way but I mean you, you raise some good points about it being emotionally bare from a lyrical perspective and certainly I can't fault his vocals and he's still getting into it with all his heart. I think I'd like to hear him have done this song in a different way, like if it had been something just him and a guitar with maybe a little bit of sparse percussion in the background. I don't know, maybe I would have thought of it differently, but first thing I thought, oh, it's a Van Morrison song and it's just the same three chords over and over again. And it, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe I'll uh, try to reassess it after yeah, well, we've finished yeah. recording this in its own well, right. If you listen to Milestones, the last song on River, which mm. I think is, is the most overtly jazz influence right down to name dropping Miles Davis in the name. I feel like Fool and You is trying to do something similar, but it by way of something like, I think of Song Without words the david crosby like the last song on on his record if i if only i can remember my name i think i forget that it's i think it's the tree song without words like that kind of wandering kind of acapella not acapella but like a wordless kind of song close to that record i feel like fooling you feels like 
informed by that a little bit, but it also feels like he's trying to approximate the melodies of a horn player in his vocal line. Like I think of um, like he was someone that was paying attention to Coltrane and you know people like that. I don't know if he succeeds or not, but it feels like the melody almost feels like designed to be played by another instrument rather than sung. And that's how it plays for me. So that when he's dueling with, and he's not, he never, he's never really dueling with the saxophone. It's always complimentary. I think that that's an influence that you don't really get a sense of that on the rest of the record, like where he's, he's adopting a more exploratory way with the melody. I hope that we may think the same thing, that this is the centerpiece of the album and that's to be treated right. Mm. Now, you've already mentioned that you heard that played in The Devil's Reject as your first time. Now, I've not seen the film. Can you describe, not necessarily from a story perspective, but what the mood was like in the film it's, at it, that it, point? I think it's just establishing the characters who are villains. I mean, it's a it's a film that is built around its villainous characters as the protagonists, really. But it's just them kind of regrouping. It's just meant to establish them kind of having a quieter moment away from the mayhem and murder that they've been in, engaged in. So it is used correctly. It isn't used, I well, know correctly is the right word, but it, it's not used like as a counterpoint to something grisly. It's meant okay. for a moment of calm. All of the Terry Reid's music in the film is not used in any kind of great ironic way. It's kind of all meant to establish moments of calm. Mm. I was sort of, I've been thinking a lot about this song in particular. And the first time I heard this, I don't know whether you're a fan, but first thing I heard was, oh, this is the best song Sandy Denny never recorded. I just, his vocal delivery and the composition or maybe the arrangement of the song, it reminded me a lot of the song Fothering Gay. Okay, I don't know that song and I'm going to have to listen to it after we're done recording. Okay. I... But there's just something about how he delivers the song up until the very end and we've been speaking a lot about how he had that sense of drama and where he would let loose but mm. he pulls back and when he's pulling back in the first part of the song I can hear Sandy Denny's voice over this and she would have still been around at the time that this album came out I'd be interested to know whether she heard it and whether she was a fan I'd like to think that she would but the lyric in this I think more than just about any other song on the album really speaks to me with honesty on the one hand you listen to it and you think because of what the melody is intoning to you that is going to be just purely a dark song but it's really just more a song about honesty you know when under bad circumstances we show our true selves yeah he, they start a, we are what we are in danger and we are as we stand head in hands and when you think about it we might say oh i'd do this thing if the circumstances allowed it and i do that thing but when you've got a choice to face you're never more honest as when you have 
danger or hard circumstances staring you in the face, would you really be as generous to someone if bad circumstances push came to shove? This is at a point where he's had a number of bad experiences in the industry. And I think of lines like some of us are out to win and some of us are out just to aim that he's talking about everyone has their ambitions and some people are gonna pursue their dreams and i think there's a line about there's always advice on a cold winter's night like your dreams are just an island in the sand like there's always gonna be some people to tell you that you can't do it or just looking to discourage you and that's all that they're out to do and it's done in such a poetic way that it doesn't even feel like because it builds to something quite <laughs> almost alarming in power you know by the end of it that it it, it, it has a very positive message <laughs> yeah so i'm still trying to work out whether it is a song that holds much faith in human nature. Ostensibly, he's saying, well, we'll either fall to pieces after having put up a facade or we'll desperately search for courage. It's a song that acknowledges our vulnerability and that is as human as it gets. Yeah, it is definitely a song that's trying to find the common element in everyone. I hear it and I just assume that it's about the people that are trying to keep him from achieving things, but he's trying to couch it in very universal language. Sad to say, but it occurred to me that this song that was written in 1976 still holds huge emotional weight in 2019. The song that says, when shit happens, our true selves are exposed. We're dreaming of a better time when we'll recognize that you can't tell a person's politics or ethnicity or ideology from their skeletons regardless. But here we are in 2019 and... I don't know if people are behaving worse than ever or thanks to social media and everyone's got an opinion to put out there. It's uh, we're a lot more aware of who says what and who believes what. And that song sitting back and observing human nature is as unfortunately relevant as it ever was. Mm. Um, Very scary in that regard. It's not without a little sense of optimism. There's that verse where he sings, Oh, we are what we are when we're praying in our way of seeking some light. May the mission bell still ring of the colorful dream and the faith that everyone will be treated right. So even in a world that really doesn't lend itself much to optimism or to hope, he's still voicing that level of hope. He said, all right, I'll be that guy. I'll still say that I have a dream. And however unlikely it might be, at least this is what we aim for. If we have nothing to aim for, we're gone. But we aim that we should all treat right and be treated right. Do you know if there are any parts of the world where right, R-I-T-E, would be the spelling that would be used in place of right, R-I-G-H-T? Because the way we're talking about it, uh, we're talking about it like R-I-G-H-T, but he spells it R-I-T-E like a ritual. So I was just curious if that was just him being mischievous or if there was actually another reason why he chose that spelling. I don't know. Is that ye old English? I didn't look it up. I wasn't sure if it was just that or not, because just just even seeing the word right, R-I-T-E, I just think of it as having almost kind of a um, like a witchy quality to it. I don't know. I mean, and, sure. it, it, and with the like the minor key folk kind of arrangement, it gives it like a slightly doomy feel, whether or not that's at odds with the lyrics. The thing that I appreciate musically about this is I don't know whether it's intentional or not, but I'd like to think it, it is is we have lines like, we are what we are when in danger. So if you're listening to this, you have 
two major chords and this line is resolved with a minor chord. So we sing, we are what we are, and that's a D chord and an E chord, two major chords. And then when in danger, it goes to a B minor chord. It's ascending, so you get the D chord, which goes up to the E chord and then goes down to the B minor. So when we're singing, we are what we are, and think, okay, what's this about? When in danger. And, <laughs> uh, and we are as we stand, head in hands. So that D, E, B minor, I'd like to think that that was a deliberate thing. Two major chords ascending and then descending down to a minor level chord. And it's a wonderful case of the lyrics and the music working together like right down to the minutia level of chord construction rather okay happy song major sad song minor and i know that my son has he has a big b in his bonnet about people just sort of putting that classification as a catch-all way of thinking and he's right to an extent because you know all you know klezmer music is all in a minor key and it's all extremely happy yes but but just to use this as an example i think you know this is a melancholy song uh, or at least a very wistful sort of song and it is pointing out some harsh realities and he's using the chord construction to illustrate or, or to go along with the lyric that he does i love there's a beautiful tasteful cello and violin string section playing behind him and they're not trying to be too fancy i think they're going through the george martin arrangement of yesterday school of thought where it's just there to provide an undercurrent to the music they're not there to do any fancy violin solo sort of thing which could have completely ruined the tastefulness of this song this is a perfect song to me yeah and yeah. it's as much to do with the arrangement as the composition well, I'm, I'm so glad that my suggestion of this record has brought you to this song in particular. <laughs> I'm, I'm just bowing down to your brilliance. Thank you, Bill. And I'm, I'm sure Heather Drain is out there listening, thinking, yay, go, Bill, or, <laughs> or something. We both love you, Heather. Yes, we do. Final thoughts mm. on the album for you, Bill. If you were to recommend this to someone just to say, right, hey, I reckon you should listen to this, but I won't put you through having to listen to a two-hour podcast for about it. Yeah, I would say that if you like the like the more minor key, gentle but intense moments of things like Rumours or some of the Neil Young records of the 70s or even some of the Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young songs, it has like a consistency to the songwriting. Like it has a um, like a variety of styles that all complement each other. I don't really think, I mean, I think there's one filler track, which is a perfectly serviceable hard rock type song. But everything else, I think, I've been listening to this record pretty steadily since 2005. And I, it's one that has held up for me to many, many listens. Uh, every track on it, I have a history with. You know, you don't have to have an association with horror movies, <laughs> uh, obviously, right. to enjoy it it's a great summing up of everything that makes terry reed an interesting artist and it's it's also kind of sweet because you know as somebody that has had his share of bad breaks to have some such a sympathetic ear like graham nash clearly had to bring out the very best in the arrangements that support terry reed which is not something you get on the other records quite like this that it gives the most fully developed and fleshed out presentations of the songs. i mean i'm sure it would be fine if he did it with the power trio you know from the early records also, if you like Graham Nash's solo records, this is going to be an interesting thing to you because I think Graham Nash as a solo artist, like he has that very thin kind of gentle, almost kind of fade delivery at times. And I think if you wanted something 
with that sense of pop of that period, but like with a little bit of grit and soul to it, that this might be a good complimentary record to those records, too. I think it's just a consistently good record and the best vehicle for Tara Reid's uh, incredible voice. It's a shame that they didn't record again, or did they? Did they, they record nev- again together? No, they never did. This is the, and the only other song they did together, I think, is Be Yourself on the first Graham Nash record. We once had a saviour, but by our behaviour, the one that was worth it is gone. Songbirds are talking, and the runners are walking. A prodigal son is coming home. Don't theorise. No, that's yeah, that's a real shame because it was a perfect storm. They did seem to complement each other at least graham nash seemed to know how to bring out the best in terry's sound and terry's music and if it meant sort of doing something that csny fans would uh, be drawn to then there's part of that in the production but once again there's also the funky soul side which you don't normally associate with graham nash just one final thing we'd mentioned before that terry had immersed himself in an americana style rather than sort of bringing his british heritage to the music and i think possibly the one song in the album that we hadn't spoken about but i think might be the exception in even this still sort of has a an Americana feel to it with Ben Keith or David Lindley doing some slide work over it, is the song Brave Awakening. sounds to me like a Scottish folk tune. It's that Scottish waltz and using words like laddies and yeah. bairns. I love that word, bairns, uh, for babies. But the crux of this song is the crux of the album, which is Terry's emotive reading of the story. And this may well be based on an old Scottish folk song, for all I know. And this is a tune about a mine closing in a town and there goes the town's livelihood yeah but you get to the end of the song and they say well but you know on the other hand you know i as a parent i didn't want my kids to go down the mines anyway so it's the possibility of a new future and this could easily once again like what we discussed about the first song a new start could also reflect Terry's own history you know well I've had problems with this label and problems with Mickey most and with that label but well here's the possibility of a fresh new start and that in essence this song could be about what this album as a whole encapsulates yeah yeah I agree with you that's a really great way to put it I I, for some reason I think of Neil Young's Harvest because of of the pedal steel I even think of like the country rock of people like Graham Parsons a little bit or even something like Wild Horses or something like that but yeah it is one of the most beautiful songs on the record and like I said earlier like it does remind me of things like Here Comes a Regular and that it feels like a tip of the hat to the guys that would have been his brothers in arms in the mines had he not gone into music because he didn't come from privilege he would have definitely been down in the mines 
lines with those guys had he not had a knack for for song yeah it does feel like the one overt nod to his past i mean even more Mm -hmm. than faith to arise which has the line about london but for the most part this is a very american record and oh it's a lovely song i mean i I, and, and it's sandwiched between two of the most brooding songs on the record which gives it such an interesting flow because it doesn't feel out of place it feels like the logical place to go next after the title track but before to be treated right mm. it gives it such heart i mean that they uh, yeah like i think i've used the word for yearning but it, it feels like it's such a powerful moment and it is similar to the climaxes of the other two songs that surround it as far as like he built these kind of heart-rending climaxes but it's great i mean it it doesn't feel like show off kind of singing at all it feels like totally in character with the song and takes it takes it all the way home it's hard for me to really even pick a favorite on this record because there's so many that feel like the peaks to me i mean it just depends on the kind of day i'm having use the great word heart and i think that's probably why I would throw that song into someone's face. Hey, if you're only going to listen to one song, and you should listen to more, but if you're only going to do the one, this is the one, or at least this is the first song that I want to grab your attention with because it has heart. You believe everything Terry sings. There are some people who sing technically great, and he's not a technical singer, but he's a singer with heart and real soul and emotion, and I feel something when I listen to his voice. I mean, you mentioned Rod Stewart before. You said like he'd done an album in the early 90s that sounded like it was a a Rod Stewart cash-in, which is a real shame, but... I mean, your Rod Stewart's early days, you know, Gasoline Alley and all that sort of thing is is fantastic. But in that sort of vein, I think Terry should have had Rod Stewart's fame. And uh, I don't want to sort of go comparing and saying he could sing Rod Stewart under the table, but... Really, he had he had something special. He did. When you get to the records that follow Seat of Memory, I mean, something like Rogue Waves, which is, it's like a really good EP's worth of original Terry Reid songs, and then a lot of covers that really feel, they go too over the top. It's like Phil Spector covers, and all I want to do is dream, 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 and like and th- things that like, it's almost kind of like, it's the first time that he's starting to appeal to nostalgia, to baby boomer nostalgia. So Seat of Memory is the last one that feels like he's in the present like he's in the moment like he's part of this california scene like his friends are all the rock stars you know and love like he's part of that too he just needs his shot and after that it's not like the records ever really betray a a hint of bitterness or dissatisfaction like they still feel like optimistic records and that's the thing that's interesting about terry reed is that there's no bitter resentful quality to those records like even though he's a guy that has had a famously checkered unlucky career in terms of like a big success he still seems just to be whether or not this is just his public persona, he seems just to be happy to be doing it, happy to have yeah. the opportunity to sing songs for people. It doesn't seem like it's a problem that he didn't wind up in Deep Purple or Led Zeppelin or playing Altamont or whatever. Like It doesn't seem like this is part of his disposition. And I, I think that that makes him even more likable underdog in a way because he doesn't seem to have any grudges about it. Even the one manager kind of held him back professionally. I mean, you get songs like To Be Treated Right that really kind of consider fairness in a very kind of rational way rather than writing songs that resentful of anyone. Like, they're very positive records in that sense, even when they have ominous chord changes. Once again, coming back to uh, that Mark Maron interview, he really did sound like a guy who won't have any notion of he's had 
an unfortunate life. He said, what are, you, what are you talking about? I get to play the guitar and sing songs and write songs and record with great musicians. I'm very fortunate. He completely sounds like a guy who's loved what's happened. And the whole notion about him not being heard by millions of people, I think in his mind is, well, that's an issue for you as a fan, not for me as a performer. I'm doing what I want. And how many musicians have got millions of records sold and they're trapped in do the greatest hits, you know. He's the sort of musician who, if he came out and said, right, I'm going to do some new songs for you, I think I'd be up for that. I know certainly every time I see Richard Thompson and he says, I'm going to play some songs from the new album, I think I want to hear the new album. Yeah. Um, he's not trapped in a greatest hit circuit. So his attitude is he's been very fortunate. And you get into music wanting to do something artistic, at least you know the songwriters do. And uh, I mean, okay, sure, you've got a week, but if you're stuck doing the same songs in 2019 that you've done in 1969 because it's expected of you, then even if you're selling millions of records, that's not so fortunate. So by his definition, he's a very fortunate man. Full respect. We've spoken for a long while about Terry Reid, and I'm hoping that anyone out there who hears this chooses to uh, go out and search out at least those first four albums from the back catalogue. And I know I'm certainly going to investigate the others, even though it sounds like there are issues that you've had with them, Bill, but at least they're going to be worth of uh, you know, a one-off listen. But certainly I'm going to immerse myself a lot. Thank you so much for being on the program this time, and, and I hope it won't be your last. I hope you want to come back. I, I would love my, to come back. Yeah, no, this is a lot of fun. My door is open to you. What we're going to have to do now is have a, a trio with the wonderful Heather Drain. Yes, yeah, it's, um, it's about time. I, I don't think I'll need to twist her arm terribly much to agree to that. So uh, we'll find something, I hope, this year. The downside of this podcast is I only do one show a month. When I say, yeah, later this year, it could only be two, three episodes away, but we'll see how we go. But yeah, I definitely want to do something for the three of us. It'd be wonderful. We'll have to find something that we all will be prepared to enjoy. I think we all have so, pretty, pretty healthy musical diets. I'm sure there's got to be some overlap records in there. hundred percent, hundred percent. I'll go back through your list of 10 or maybe I'll say, right, well, Heather, what's your list of 10? So once again, you've already gone and said at the beginning of the show how people can find you on the interwebs to listen to. What have you got coming up next? Because it's been a while since your last episode. What's, yes, what's coming up next? That's a good question. I, right now, I'm just I'm preparing notes for an audio commentary for a, a release that hasn't been announced yet, so I, I can't say. But just prepping on some uh, podcast appearances. I'm going to be on a couple of Projection Booth episodes in October. That's about it. I, I Supporting characters is on a little bit of a break, but I, I will bring it back. In, in the meantime, people that uh, are interested in hearing my hours and hours of conversations with, with critics, historians, programmers, and the like, and can find my back catalog on all the, the podcatchers or at uh, nowplayingnetwork.net slash supporting characters. I also did a show, I, if anyone listening is a big fan of Blue Velvet for whatever reason, the David Lynch movie, I did do a, uh, a little mini series of interviews with crew people from Blue Velvet called From the Neighborhood. You can find that in all the same places. Yeah, I heard your appearance on Just the Discs podcast where you went through all the Criterion editions of David Lynch and you did have a fair bit to say at the time. 
at uh, Blue Velvet, I thought, yeah, this is obviously a film that resonates a lot with you. Yes, no, Blue Velvet was a life-changing film. There was a point where I lived in North Carolina for a couple of years in the town where they shot it, and a friend of mine that still lived in the town knew a few crew people that had never really told their stories about their experience making the film, and so I just went down there and interviewed them all over the course of a couple of days and shared them just because if any other fans are curious to hear the stories that, you know, don't circulate with quite the same regularity as like, you know, David Lynch and Dennis Hopper and Laura Dern and Kyle McLaughlin and their impressions of the film. People that have interest in, you know, the uh, person that worked on the props for the film, let's say, or the uh, person that designed the ear. You know, I talked right. to those now, guys. That'd be a story. <laughs> that'd be a great story. Yeah, I just, I mean, if, if you're if you're a real big fan of Blue Velvet, From the Neighborhood is my other show. I don't know if I'll do any more episodes of that, but I just threw them out there for fans of the show. For fans of the film, rather. <laughs> mm. So I think that pretty much covers it. Yep. So next month on the show, we're going to do something a little bit different. Not going to be covering an album per se, but uh, I've been talking about this with Eric Reanimator, Eric Peterson, who does the a compilation edition episodes. In case you haven't heard it yet, Eric is going to be stopping doing those in uh, November or December of this year. He has other things to get on with life, and I'm very sad to be losing those episodes as part of the show but we all have other things to get on with life and all things come to an end and he's been doing it for like about five and a half years so that's definitely a really really good run but he'll be joining me i think for only the second time on the show as the two of us talking together which is really quite weird how much he's associated with the program so what we're going to be doing next month is we've each picked five of our favorite songs from the nuggets box set Uh, so we're not going straight just to the original lenny K Nuggets double album because we only have like what 24 25 songs to pick from from there so we're going to pick our favorite five songs each out of this mammoth four cd box set with like over 100 songs on it and we're each going to talk about those five songs so 10 songs in all almost like an all-time top 10 podcast episode but we want to sort of show just how diverse the label of garage music is and just how much stuff there is on uh, this Nuggets box set. And if you haven't bought yourself a copy of that, this will hopefully convince you why you should search it out. Or hearing that, that's that's an amazing compilation. It's really, really wonderful. And then there's the Nuggets 2, which covered a lot of garage, well, what label is garage music Son from of the rest of the rest of the world son of nuggets about the paisley underground scene and then there's just like a whole lot of other albums which have nothing to do with the official nuggets name i know there's a an album that came out called Lost Nuggets, so bands from South America. A lot of those are sort of like Spanish language covers of Rolling Stones songs or just basically English language songs done in Spanish. So less of the original compositions, which is a bit of a shame, but still some great bands on there. An album that I really love and might cover at a later date is called Down Under Nuggets. And I think that sort of is licensed to Rhino as well. So covering a lot of uh, forgotten Australian bands and a few bands that have not been forgotten, like the Masters Apprentices, but also some bands that have not been thought of since those days. And even including like a for, for those of you who only think of the Bee Gees in terms of their disco period or in terms of their Baroque pop period, there's a couple of really sort of garage rock tunes on this Down Under Nuggets thing. So you get to hear them in a different light. And then there's the Rubble box set and there's a bunch of uh, bootleg things that came out in the way. But I don't, in fact, like even like to use the word bootleg for this. I think these are archivists, people who've got these large collections of 45s 
which haven't had like a legitimate release and they're just basically sort of putting those out for all the world to hear and they came out in the CD compilation bootlegs in the noughties. I really love that people are sort of not letting these great songs, and some of them not necessarily so great, but at least a part of pop music history not be forgotten. So, And there's probably thousands of songs out there which not even the... Uh, the bootleg archivists have taken into account for so but anyway we're going back to where it all began with the lenny k original plus the expansion on the rhino box set of the early 90s going to each talk about our favorite five songs from that box so that's august's episode 126 of love that album so uh, hope you can join us for that that'll be a lot of fun and if you want to send me an email rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au join the facebook group because we're very friendly. I like to think we are. And that pretty much covers it. So once again, Bill, thanks for being a part of it. Thank you so much for having me. Look look forward to the next thing that we do. And out there, please be nice to each other. Listen to some great music. Watch great films. Watch some music films, because they're an important part of my life as well. And I hope they're an important part of yours. Tune into the See Here podcast, where we discuss music-related films. Discover a documentary about an artist that you didn't know about and then get converted to their music. Do something unsafe. So until next month, all the best. Cheers. Cheers.